everyone. Um, we're going to get started. Welcome to Poetry and Conversation. We're so happy to see you all this evening. And just want to take this moment to invite everyone to come browse our best poetry collections at the library in our humanities and periodicals departments. Um, also to let you know that this is a part of a series and we have many other poetry events at the library. Um, for example, on Sunday afternoon, December 1st, there's going to be a reading featuring Kyle Jargon and Amber Flora Thomas. And then um, in 2014, we have a reading by Sarah Arvio and Leah Purpura scheduled on Tuesday, January 28th. Um, we also have a poetry contest going on right now um, for all Maryland residents 18 and older. And if you go to www.prattlibrary.org forward slash poetry contest, you can get information about that. Um, but tonight is very special. We're really honored that we are hosting poets Elizabeth Spires and Joel Beale. And the plan for tonight is that they're each going to read about 20 minutes, and then we're going to have some Q&A. And then they will read some closing poems, and there will be a little time to buy books um, and chat at the end. Um, okay, and I forgot to introduce myself. I'm Shailene, and I work in the fiction department here. Um, so I'm just going to introduce Joelle Beale. Joelle Beale is the author of White Summer and the editor of Elizabeth Bishop and the New Yorker, The Complete Correspondence. A Fulbright scholar in Germany and Poland, she has received awards from the Poetry Society of America and the Maryland State Arts Council. Her essays, fiction, and reviews appear in such places as Black Warrior Review, Harvard Review, and Kenyon Review. And her play, These Fine Mornings, was first read at the University of Chicago with the support of the Poetry Foundation. A new volume of poems, Broom, will be published next year. Um, the first poem that I read by Joelle Beale is one called To Andrew at Three Months. And it's a poem about taking a baby sledding, which ends with this description of the baby. You open your mouth, let a few notes go, and you're a coachman rattling your reins, a snow plow, salting the night. You measure the sky's circumference, and you're the boy on the corner ringing your bell, waving your arms, shouting the news to the dark, speeding world. Now that I have read more of Joelle Beale's work, I see that this poem was a good entry point since it shows some of her signature qualities. For one thing, Joelle Beale's poems seem fascinated with movement, movement from time to time or place to place as the key to insight. There are also poems that enact movement constantly in their own surface, being full of long sentences quickened into life by many lovely musical pauses. These are poems wedded to the idea of a pattern underlying nature that is mysterious, not directly knowable, like the news shouted by the baby. And finally, since their news is life-affirming and their form exhilarating, Joelle Beale's poems do what the sled ride does, they lead to joy. Please help me to welcome Joelle Beale. Thanks a lot. Um, I'm very excited to be reading here with Beth. Um, I'd met Beth, I guess, 
16 years ago. Beth was my workshop instructor up at Breadloaf. And um, the, I had wanted to take the class with her because she had interviewed Elizabeth Bishop, who I was just obsessed with, and I'm still <laughs> obsessed with. And um, she was a wonderful teacher. And I have a few poems in here I'm, gonna, I'm going to read um, that she had seen and that had changed dramatically after being being in her class. But the first poem I'm going to read is called Autumn. And um, it to give it a little bit of context, um, I, I was born in New York, and my parents are from the Bronx. And when I was seven years old, we moved out to Chicago. And my parents um, were just very excited to be in this completely different part of the country than they had lived in before. And they felt like they were able to go west. <laughs> And they joined a rock club, uh, which their neighbors were involved in. And so we traveled all around Michigan and Iowa and southern Illinois, going to these strip mines looking for fossils and geodes in a farmer's field in Iowa. And uh, these folks all got together and decided they wanted to see the migration of the cranes up in Wisconsin. And um, I was not too thrilled, but <laughs> they were really excited, and I was... I had no idea what this was about, but for all these folks, and my parents especially, it was, it was quite a big deal. So this is called Autumn. I think it was October, November, morning dark along a bend in the Wolf or Wisconsin River, and I am seven or eight, and we are sitting on the cold hood of my father's car the first days of the fall migration, and I am sure it was the long-necked cranes, nothing like the cranes I folded from paper at school. I know the changed leaves muddy the water and the marsh grass, dry, lost, takes on a kind of metal brilliance, hard from the river and the early sun. I'm tired and want to go back in the car, the radio night, far from here, and I'm thinking of my mobile, the birds I tied to a hanger, triangle out of triangle, wing, neck, spine, their bodies full of air. I don't hear the wings, I don't hear the calls, only the rush of cattails, mildew, ferns, and a sky full of birds. It was like a giant string pulled them up, can pull me up, into the air, a wingspan bigger than my boy's body, into the pull of earth turning, the rhythm of light, the pattern of stars, a map, a grid, a night city or late orchard I could hide in, apples filled with stars. Oh. <laughs> um, the next one is, is Grand Central for, um, in New York. And one thing um, that's important is the old board that they used to have there. Now they have, it's a giant computer screen. But this is the board that they had, which comes up. So, um, And this was before, like, Italy was in there and Pensy Spices. So. Um, as if the night sky could be this dirty shade of green and the stars were just these small, small lights. Here's a night sky no one ever sees. The lion, the fish, the bear, the yellow lines that blend in the dark like words in the soft pages of children's books. I'm waiting for my father, sitting on the steps or the long wooden bench, its high back, watching the attendant, his quiet face and blue cap. I don't know if my father's late or maybe I'm early. There's the damp newspapers and muddy shoes, lilies and ferns, a cart of summer flowers. The station almost empty, the trains an hour apart. I know there's a string quartet around which people stand in a sort of circle. 
They're tired but listening, and there's a woman trying to get someone to dance, as if this is what she's wanted to do her entire life, as if this is what she's been doing, the station to herself until someone finally steps in, and now I'm afraid to look. There's a man who once took my book and drew the folded hands of Jesus on the inside cover, the woman who gets on trains every night asking for fare, the man who'll come up, embrace you, a beery kiss on the ear. If it's true, they've already entered the afterlife. If it's what gives them that lightness, that ability to disappear, then all I hear is the roll of the board like so many shutters banging, like birds, like people clapping their hands. Rain outside, it's a sparrow night, all the black umbrellas, and under any one I can meet my father. If this is how one enters the afterlife, just a cello and water on the floor, the gritty sound of arrivals and departures, a woman with a bucket and brush on the stairs, then the revolving door is the ocean, the white tail of the salty wind, and I'm standing on the hill, watching the stars, the trains, the long black whistle, the dirty waters of somebody's empty heart. This is called uh, Rapture. It starts with a low rumbling, white static, a broken shell to the ear. It starts with water, tide pulling. It starts with the cold kiss of the sun. It's hands clapping, birds clamoring, and laughter coming through the walls. It starts with snow breathing, bottles falling, the night hum of a road. It's a bus shifting gears. It's the flower inside the tree, the song inside the wood. It's a mouthpiece buzzing, the psh-psh of a Bach cantata. It's walking through a pile of leaves. It starts with wet legs and poppies. It starts with bitter chicory. It's diked fields, the suck under your shoe. It starts with an idling motor. It's horses and fogs. It starts with spilt sugar. It's sizzle and spatter. It's your voice underwater. It's a bell buoy sway. It starts with a sail luffing, whispering in the wings. It starts with a policeman walking, a rosy ear, a dog barking, honey and flies. It starts with a knife sharpening and plates smashing against the door. It starts deep in the belly, the back of the throat. It's a need like salt, crackle and flame. It starts with sounds you've never made. It's not your voice in your mouth. Your words are not your own. It's the body breaking into islands. It's the fall through wind lifting white leaves. Nice. Nice. The, uh, the next group I'm going to read, I, I, um, Beth saw when I was at Breadloaf in a much longer version. I... For some reason, I got on this thing where I was just obsessed about finding everything out about all these different animals and insects and birds. And I had poems that were like two, three pages long with, you know, quotes from the OED and, you know, obscure encyclopedias. (laughs) And Beth had taken a look at them, and she said to me, Joelle, have you ever tried writing a sonnet? (laughs) And she thought, you know, maybe I could try that. And I ended up taking all these poems and turning them into sonnets, and I've been writing sonnets really ever since, and um, I'm just addicted to them, and it's all, it's all thanks to Beth. So you're going to hear much shorter poems than you might have heard. <laughs> heard these a long time ago. So the first one is called To a Cicada. One of you sounds like one million. Your rackety music is a thousand screen... One of you sounds like one mil...
one of you sounds like one million. Your rackety music is a thousand screen doors slamming shut in the night. Someone needs to oil your wings. You shake the day with your music. You've infected my dreams. All summer, your song goes on and on until I think you're gone for good. And then fall, late September, October, tonight, the first full frost, and you get even louder. You're the final sweep of the symphony, the tenor gesturing on stage, the boy practicing guitar late in the garage. Your terrible static rumbles in my ears, opens up the cold, breezy night, and then the winter storms. Already I'm lonely without you. This is uh, to a mockingbird. And this was really, this was a real mockingbird. So So it's you, sitting on the aerial, singing an obad of car alarms and buses, dogs in the alley, a scratchy record caught in a groove, singing your love song to a foggy city that says, do not disturb. From your Sunday perch, you sing a thin sliver of river, trains whose winter whistle you echo, along with plane engines, New Year's pots and pans, the minaret, bells calling the faithful to prayer. My Russian bird who winds up with a key, you sing in perfect pitch the songs of cats and sparrows, of garbage cans and rooftop puddles. You're an alarm clock without the snooze, a truck hitting the brakes, a player piano left in the rain. Please, please go back to sleep. And then these are some poems from the new uh, manuscript. This is called From Ocracoke, which is an island um, at the end of the, of the Outer Banks. Um, and it's not actually about Ocracoke, but it's about another island, Cumberland Island, which um, is part of a national seashore uh, that's down there. And um, my husband and I had wanted to go, uh, go to see this, and you had to hire um, a, a boat to take you out there, a fisherman who would take you, you know, for 20 bucks. He'd drop you off kind of on the beach. You'd wade onto the island, and then he's like, be back by four. <laughs> and you would, you would take him, uh, you'd get him back. Um, and it was a very interesting island because in some of these areas that the Park Service buys, people don't necessarily give up their land. And so there were still people living out on the island along with the fisher, fishermen who were out there, along with all these abandoned houses, which was very, um, it was kind of strange. So this is from Ocracoke. The sky was gray and sharp, a rusted hinge, and the boat was the size and color of a taken-down door. We left without books or maps. We had no plans except sea on one side, bay on the other, and a guide who'd steer us by an island of birds, one of shells, and leave us on a beach of grass and muddy flies, boards perched on rocks and no trees, to find a town of empty houses, its one church locked. Did we think we could walk away from everything we knew, walk into words, the way he said out, dip between the O and the U, swing into time like a hand in water, be so completely out of ourselves, we'd walk from a cove of stale and sandy streams to a town swept green, gloves on the rail, the table set, curtains up. Over the dunes, the beach unfurled like a line cast too long, and the wind curled over the drying rims. The boat was only a spark on the water, and the sky, bleached and frayed, held nothing but clouds and the smell of gasoline. Mm-hmm. 
And um, this is called Birthday Poem. Um, and uh, uh, it, the title's explanatory, I guess. <laughs> On February 27th, 1969, I don't need to look it up, Macy's or Gimbel's was having a sale. Winter or white, it doesn't matter. They had stuff to sell, and they were going to sell it. And I'd bet real money if I opened the classifieds. I'd see someone looking to hire a cook or Girl Friday, someone offering their services as a handyman or hoping to unload a sofa cheap. I know Americans were bombing Cambodia while the Viet Cong was bombing Saigon, and the sea had not yet begun to rise, though temperatures had. And the Grateful Dead played the Fillmore, the first of four nights. The record is still available. You can buy a box set. My father was not there, though he was nearby, nor was my mother, who was at her parents in the Bronx, waiting for labor to begin. It was my grandmother who recognized the moment and dragged garbage cans into the street to save the space before dropping my mother off at the hospital, where she would be shaved, put under, not to meet me until the next day, when the nurse entered the room muttering, poor thing. The earth did not stand still. No one experienced a grand transformation. The wind outside my mother's window continued to blow as the number six rolled along its tracks in a city that had yet to emerge from three feet of snow. When I was five or six, my mother explained how a child comes to be. She denies this. She made a pencil dot and said the dot was the egg that was me. When I asked what would happen if that sperm she also drew did not fertilize that egg, she looked at me and said, you would still be you. You would just be somebody else. Not knowing, I think, what <laughs> not box, not knowing, I think, what box it was she opened up. Call it dumb luck or simply chance as to why a man took one door and not another, why he stopped to read the headlines or started to run down the platform to catch a certain train, why he set off one chain of events and not another, a chain that could have been long or short or never occurred at all, that I am one set of particles and you are another, that you are here by a series of events as equally unlikely as me. It would be nice to say X happened and it was good, but I can't, despite the definite attraction of making some larger claim. It's the very tenuousness of each moment that weighs on me that I try to ignore so I can go about my day knowing something as simple as a spilled cup of coffee could keep us from lying in this particular bed on this particular night with these very particular children sleeping between us with the windows and curtains open and morning about to begin when all of it could conceivably have never, will never have happened again. Lie with me, love, hold me, grab onto the sheets, batten down the pillows, float with me in this bed over the treetops and out of tune birds. Let us sail out into morning, come what may, over the abyss. And then Shailene had talked about some poems I had for my kids, and I'm going to close with, with those. So I, first one is for my daughter, Catherine, um, at 14 months. All morning you've studied the laws of spoons, the rules of books, the dynamics of the occasional plate, observed the principles governing objects in motion and objects at rest, to see if it will fall and if it does how far, if it will rage like a lost penny or ring like a Chinese Kong, because it doesn't have to. You lean from your chair and hold your cup over the floor. 
It curves in your hand, it waves in your palm, it arches like a wave, it is a dipper full of stars, and you're the wind timing the pull of the moon, you're the water measuring the distance from which we fall. And then one for Andrew, which is at um, 17, Andrew at 17 months. Chimney sweep, fireman, one-man cleaning crew, you follow me down the hall to the kitchen, stand behind me, and ask for the broom. You push it over leaves and dirt from the yard, bits of wood and ash from the stove, and the broom is your horse and riding crop. It's your long alp horn. Drum major or majorette, pendulum or metronome, you swing to a waltz Strauss never knew. You point, you charge, you begin your high-wire act, and the broom is the sum of all parts, and you're the man standing in traffic, waving your baton, directing me into my life, into what I don't know. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Joelle. Um, the others are really, that was really lovely. Um, Elizabeth Spires is the author of six poetry collections, Globe, Swan's Island, Annunciade, Worldling, Now the Green Blade Rises, and The Wavemaker. She has also written six books for children, including The Mouse of Amherst and I Heard God Talking to Me, William Edmondson and His Stone Carvings. Her poems have appeared in The New Yorker, The Atlantic, Poetry, The American Poetry Review, and other magazines and anthologies. She lives in Baltimore and is a professor of English at Goucher College, where she co-directs the Kratz Center for Creative Writing. In one of my favorite poems of hers, Life Everlasting, Elizabeth Spires writes, The world is shadowed and shining, complete and torn. The world's a wheel, and death flashes out at us, makes the world shine. This paradox that the world is mortal, but something immortal shines through it, is at the heart of her work. These are poems very much in love with the sensuous world. They are full of enchanting visual images, like the brilliant light of the midi that changes white shadowed sheets on the crumpled bed into a still life of absence and presence, or a curving shore where watercolor waves wash up in shades of ultramarine. These poems are also full of entrancing, lineated music, like the music of an ultramarine sea. At the same time, though, they are poems in love with darkness and silence, poems in which the poet says to a bird, do you dream as I do of crossing dark water? These are poems that treasure children's games, lovers' profiles, a baby's laughter, bright rooms, but they are also poems that cross endlessly over into what the poet calls the dangerous country, a place full of signs of our impermanence, a place where we are vulnerable and alone. If death is the mother of beauty, as well as Stephen says, then death is also the mother of the very rich gift which these poems offer us. In the poet's words, the everlasting present of our life. Please help me to welcome Elizabeth Spires. Thanks, Shailene, for those words. And I'm really glad to be reading with Joelle. I don't remember any of that, but I believe it happened, by the way, okay? But a lot of things have gone at this point. Um, I'm going to jump around and read a a couple old poems from a 
uh, Worldling, and now the Green Blade Rises, and a few poems from the Wave Maker, which is the most recent book I've written. <clears throat> and I'm going to start with a poem called Childhood. <clears throat> Once, without form or substance, I answered the call, stepping into the light, into my body. Only there could I eat and sleep and dream. Only there could I touch and be touched back, mouthing the world's words, my voice unspooling inside me. The season of childhood is summer, summer's long days. The children at play on the long lawns, wearing their bodies like shields that dare to reflect the sun. It was our country for a little while. We were each, in our time, its first citizen. And now I turn to look back into it, as one might gaze from a cloud-ridden parapet into a distant kingdom. I stand among the mothers as they call their children to come in, come in, right now. How is it that I am here? When did I change from this to that? Who changed me? A child, a daughter, answering the call. There in the falling dusk beyond my reach, she slips in and out of shadow, seeking the others out, joining a circle of unbroken hands that lightly dance around the twilight emptiness. But from each lighted house, a mother calls a name, a child drops out, and night descends. How quickly night descends. And I hear my voice rise up against the mothers and what the mothers stand for. Let the children's game never end. Let them fall exhausted where they stand, the dew staining their clothes, the moon on their bodies like a hand. Let them dream marvelous dreams as they sleep immortal in the long grass. Let everything remain as it is. I, th I think that, um, for me, um, parenthood and motherhood made me feel time passing in a different way because I was seeing change so rapidly in somebody small. Um, <clears throat> and I'll read one other poem from that section um, about uh, the first section of Worldling is, is a, like, has poems about my daughter's birth, and this is called The First Day. The first day. The ward is quiet, the mothers delivered, except in one a woman labors still and calls with a sharp cry that she is dying. She is not dying, but cannot know it now. Trapped in the birth storm, I did not cry, but saw my body as the enemy I could not accommodate could not deny. Morning arrived and my daughter. That's how it is in this world. Birth, death, matter of fact, happening like that. The room was warm. The room was full of flowers. Her face all petals and leaves, 
a flower resembling such as I had never seen. All day she slept beside me, eyes darting beneath bruised blue eyelids, retracing the journey, dreaming the birth dream over and over until it held no fear for her. I dared not wake her. The hours passed. I rested as her soul poured in her body. The way clear water poured from a height takes the shape of a flaring vase or glass or light fills a room's corners on a brilliant winter morning. Slowly, she opened her eyes, a second waking, taking me by surprise, a bright being peering out from behind dark eyes, as if she already knew what sights would be seen, what marvels lay ahead of her, weariness and woe, the joists and beams, the underpinnings of the world, shifting a little to make room for her, The first day was over forever. Tranced, I picked up the pen, the paper, and wrote, I have had a child. Now I must live with death. And um, I'm going to move on to a a book. uh, You know, the decades of a life have these concerns. They change. I don't mean exact 10 years, but I mean these phases, you know. Things like births and deaths, and uh, the, the 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 poems in um, um, "Now the Green Blade Rises." A lot of them have to do with my mother, so I'm just going to read two that are not too long. When um, <clears throat> my mother was um, was dying, uh, this is a poem um, called. It's just called "Guzzle," and that is a form. It's a Persian form in couplets, and it repeats the last word of the the second line of each couplet, keeps repeating through the poem. And that can be kind of confining. And my idea um, for myself or when I teach is just stretch it a little bit, bend the rules. So my end word is morning, but a homonym for morning is morning. So uh, it kind of alternates here. And I, I also, uh, I, I ask my students to write guzzles, but there's so much to know about them. And this, I mean, this is just an attempt because when you really get into the Urdu poets and the Persian poets um, writing these, they're very, very complicated. <coughs> Guzzle. My name in the black air called out in the early morning. A premonition dreamed. Waking, I beheld a future of mourning. Our partings were rehearsals for the final scene. You and I in a desert saying goodbye on a white September morning. The call came. West. I flew west again. Impossible, but the sun didn't move. I stepped off the plane and it was still morning. I've always worn black. Now a blank whiteness outlines everything. What shall I put on this loneliest of mornings? You've left an envelope. Inside your black pearl earrings and a note, your grandmother's 
good, and ink the color of mourning. I remember the songs you used to sing, blue morning glories on the vine, an owl in the tree of heaven, all of my childhood's sacred mornings. Your mother before you, her mother before her, I before my daughter. It's simple, I hear you explain. We are all daughters in mourning. I was your namesake, a firstborn Elizabeth entering the world on a May morning. I cannot go back to that morning. This is a great audience. I mean, clapping, that's wonderful. Uh, and this, uh, another poem that follows that is called Riddle. Um, although this is kind of a serious riddle, I, I love riddles. I, lo- I teach riddles, and um, I, a- I actually wrote two, two children's books, 26 riddles in each book. Um, I just, once I got started, I couldn't stop. But this is not that kind of riddle. This is just called Riddle. <clears throat> What you were and were not, I was. Both you and not you. I grew by taking from you. Once, years ago, the scrim parted. We were in the car, smoke from your cigarette spiraling round you. And I, a child, saw you for a moment as someone unfamiliar apart from me, as I might see a stranger on the street. Older, I looked at you and saw myself, saw more than I was prepared to see. Our last best selves survive. They shine in a dim place, and I am more and less than what I was. The riddle now, not who you were, mother, but what am I? <clears throat> and these are poems that are a little bit more recent. Um, <clears throat> my husband um, has a fascination with Haiti and has gone to Haiti on many occasions and has written books about Haiti. And um, one day when he, he has, hasn't made the trip in the past couple years, but but when this poem was written, he'd left to go to Haiti. And the same day he left, um, he subscribes to the Haitian Times, so it kind of arrived on our doorstep, and the headline was, Kidnappers Run Amok. So um, this poem is titled, You Have Flown to the Dangerous Country. You have flown to the dangerous country. How easily you have left this life behind, this street, this quiet city street, where letters arrive each day dependably, where trees make a canopy in summer, and winter, it is winter now, possesses a cold clarity. But in the place where you are, there is heat, there is hunger, and the trees have been cut down. And dogs, there must be dogs, slink out of the night's blackness, teeth bared, and the sound of drumming penetrates your sleep, even when there are no drums. 
And slowly you begin to forget the words we are used to saying here. They speak another language there, a language that has no place for words like snow and safety, a language I will never know because I have never been to the dangerous country and I do not think I will go. I think of a tear in a curtain, a jagged man-high tear that you step through easily without a glance backward because you are drawn to the dangerous country, to the need and the want and the hunger, and to something more that I cannot name. I feel such a distance, such an unreality, when I think of you in the dangerous country, with the heat and the dust and the dogs, the drums and the knives, the nightmares and the screams. But I tell myself, there must be birds and flowers, rare flame-colored exotica surrounding tiny pastel houses that a child might draw. There must be children flying kites, running along a curving shore where watercolor waves wash up in shades of ultramarine. There must be painters painting paintings of it all and laughter and singing because people laugh and sing everywhere. Oh, tell me that they sing. Do the people there, do they ever ask you what it is you mean by winter and by snow, by safety and by silence? Do you try to explain? And then I begin to wonder what it is to be safe. Do I feel safe here? And is there safety anywhere? As I move through the rooms of this house, drawing the curtains, the street so quiet now, and twilight coming on. This is a poem I kind of had fun writing. You know how sometimes you have fun writing and others you, you know, you must write, but yeah, okay. I don't usually read it, but I'm going to read it. <clears throat> it's called Troubadour at, the fork, at a Fork in the Road. And um, it kind of plays off of that troubadour tradition. <clears throat> uh, I guess it could be called Troubadour in the Middle of a Crisis, but anyway, Okay. <clears throat> Gray my hair now, gray, I sing of better days, when with a hey-ho, hey-ho, gaily I strode out into the world to sing my songs to any ear that listened. Three moments I remember, the first when the broad road forked and would not tell me no which way I was to go, and so with a hey-ho, hey-ho, I stood in the vice of left and right, yes and no, and stand there still. As rain rained down, ice held me fast. Oh, how many ticking clocks were lost or died, while I, with a hey-ho, tried to decide which way to go. And still I do not know. The road swerved and narrowed, pulling me into a wood too wide to circle roundabout, and there I found in thorn and briar there was no turning back. And so boots ran, are running still, past shadows worse than any tooth or talon. How long did that running take? Fear is no measure. And when I reached the other side, I found with a hey-ho, hey-ho, that all my rhymes were shadowed. And finally, I came to the sea, 
the wide, glittering sea, where gray-green waves move just for me, or so I thought, and sat myself down on a pebbled beach where, with a hey-ho, hey-ho, I piled stones in a circle around me, not caring for the morrow. Like an idiot child, I piled my pretty stones, knowing the waves would knock them down, and now I ask you why, oh why, oh, in all my wandering was that my happiest day. Road, forest, sea, the years have grasped me, grayed me, thrown me down on a stony shore like a ragged, half-drowned castaway, and still I do not know though I sing hey-ho, hey-ho, just what the journey means. This is a poem um, set in Baltimore and um, set somewhere on Cold Spring Lane. It's called The Snowy Day. It's an elegy for a friend. The snowy day. The last time I saw you, we met for coffee on a snowy day. Outside the window of the coffee shop, the snow fell silently and heavily, the traffic on Cold Spring Lane blurred and vague, each car a cumbersome dream vehicle plowing comically into eternity. But there you were, real as day, drinking a real cup of coffee. You were back from India. You had slept for two days. The coffee tasted wonderful, you said. You had flown to a mountain monastery to find in prayer and silence what you could not find in the everyday, taking only a few books, a change of clothes, because for too long you had carried your life like two suitcases heavy enough to kill you. When it snows, everything is light and dark at the same time. Black coffee in a white cup, the hours leaked away, until our cups were empty, the afternoon gone. Then a kiss on the cheek, a door opening out into the cold, and I was walking away, up a slippery, snowy hill, nothing at all like your mountain, and so little to hold on to. That night, the snow fell and fell and fell, erasing every landmark, quieting the world for a while. Later, after you died, I had a dream. The phone was ringing. It was you your voice on the other end of the line, laughing as you said, Beth, it's Greg. I'm in the hospital. I'm not dead. And um, I'll close this section with um, one last poem. Backyard. It didn't rain... And it didn't rain, and it didn't rain. Returning, after a month away from a place up north, we saw the parched and dying yard, the hose coiled like a snake. As if the present were past, 
I walk from this thing to that, touching dry leaves. Here is my daughter's herb garden where we buried the snail. Here is the dogwood that bloomed when tea was dying. Here is the sunflower ravaged by July. And here is the rose of Sharon coming in August into its own. Here, here, and here. The arbor, the wisteria, the bamboo, tenacious as ever, the empty swing, motionless in the heat. I unwind the coiled hose and turn the water on, watching it stream into the ground. Everything is a mouth, thirsty and unappeasable. With each step, I move farther into the future, wondering, how will I leave all this? How? How does one ever leave? I am the water bearer. I cannot die. Thank you so much. Um, that was just beautiful. I just wrapped. I could listen all night. Um, so um, um, we're going to have some now. So if you have a question, um, if you could raise your hand, I'll bring you the mic because we're um, recording just sound for a podcast. Um. Yes, thank you so much. Um, I read your poem, I mean your poetry, the new book, uh, The Wave Maker, today going to Washington. And I was fascinated by your take on snails. I never really looked at them much, and I really liked what you had to say. My question to you is this. I am trying, you are from Baltimore and you teach at Goucher. I am trying very hard to put together an archive of Baltimore City poets because there is such amazing talent in this city. And so far I've done very well. I'm doing it for the Baltimore City Historical Society. And I'm wondering, you go to many poetry readings in many different places. Do you know any other city or anybody I could talk to who's doing the same thing, either in Baltimore or in another city? I hate to see these poems lost. Now, your work won't be lost because it's in the library, but there's so much that's being written today that will disappear in 10 years if people don't collect it. And I was wondering, could you please give me some suggestions? Thank you. Joelle might have suggestions, too. Um, I um, am a native of Ohio. You asked, are there any other place that's archiving, well, not just poetry, but I know in Ohio they have this thing called the Ohioana Library. And actually, most people who write and live in Ohio or um, were born in Ohio and raised in Ohio, they collect their books. So it's for the whole state, and it includes poetry, fiction, nonfiction, and children's. Um, It's in Columbus. Uh, It's just called the Ohioana Library. I mean, I I think they're on the web, but, you know, uh, because you're probably looking for ways to collect this all up. Yes, I'm collecting it. I've got a huge collection right now. It's 
up at the Baltimore City Historical Society. I was hoping that the Enoch Pratt Library would be interested. They were, but they don't have the space and they don't have the funding. But what I have discovered, I mean, I've collected a tremendous amount of material, is that if you don't collect it in 10 years, it's out of print and it disappears. And thank you for the information about Ohio. Do you, I'm just doing it for Baltimore. Do you know of other cities who are archiving, you know, trying to methodically archive their poets? Maybe Poets House in New York, but that's for the nation. Yeah, the only thing I can think of that's locally is in D.C., and it's not what you're doing. They, um, a group of poets made a website. It's a map of D.C. where all poets have lived, and it's also fiction writers throughout the city. It's a very interactive website, and it's really, it's very cool where you can click on the different locations where Walt Whitman was or Randall Jarrell, um, and it's a map. And, um, it's Kim Roberts doing that, yeah. So, well, more power to you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I am a coucher. Great. Yeah, so you both read very beautifully. And um, as I was listening to you read your work, I could feel the force of something you were hearing in your inner ear, I think. And I'm just curious if you've ever, either of you has ever had the experience of someone else reading your work and how you felt during that. And also, can you imagine sort of a dream reader of your work? <laughs> no, I don't, I don't know that anyone has read my poems. I mean, out loud. Um, before I left, I was saying to Beth, my kids were looking at my book. They hadn't seen it before. And so they were reading the poem about the cicada, um, which they thought was funny. Um, so that was, that was kind of a delight to hear it, um, hear, them, hear them read it. Um, but I guess when I'm writing, I, am, I do think very specifically of a, a listener. I don't think in some ways I would write what I write if I weren't thinking I was speaking directly to someone. So in the new manuscript, a lot of the poems are addressed to my husband, and I don't think I would say what I say in those poems if I weren't speaking to him, if I thought I was speaking to the whole world. <laughs> um, and then I, the poems that are addressed to the kids. Um, so I guess that's kind of the idea, maybe. Um, I've heard a couple people read just a couple poems. Um, Garrison Keillor read a couple poems, and uh, he read them differently than I would, but I don't necessarily think that I'm the best reader. Well, I mean, you know, I would, I would think that's gonna hap this thing's going to happen, and then he would read it differently. Um, then there was this strange experience. Uh, there's this, there may be many guys like this that are on YouTube, but they'll, they record like a poem a day, and... So this guy's just standing in you know, front of a blank background just saying your poem. That's yeah. just really unsettling. I don't know how to put it. <laughs> uh, when I'm writing, I, um, 
It's not quite the same thing, but usually I feel some sort of rhythm, even though it's not necessarily meter metered line, and it it either feels right or it doesn't feel right, and I can't really be more specific than that. But but also, you know, like you're searching like for the right adjective, and it's right in terms of meaning, but it's not right in terms of stress. So I don't know. Well, when Garrison Keillor was was reading your poem, did you feel um, alienated from it? Did it seem like not yours suddenly, or could you feel your own work through this other voice? I felt honored. Um, I didn't feel alienated. I thought, that's really nice he chose a poem to read of mine. If both of you would just tell me a little bit about the process. You mentioned writing at sometimes poems that were pages upon pages and then condensing. Ex- explain to both of you, not just you, both of you, the, the process and when you know you're there. I, I guess it depends on the poem. There are some poems where I go through a phase where I'm completely obsessed with something and then it's just a gigantic mess (laughs) it's just pages of stuff um, that I have to winnow down and I have to part with which is very hard (laughs) because I love the details um, so much Um, so there are those kind of poems but then other poems I think I write just by ear um, that that's how I decide um you know, when it's, just when it sounds done, really. I talk all the time when I'm writing. So I write by hand, and I just chat away, so. You, are you saying the poem out loud? Yeah. Well, I, I'll draft, I'll write a, have a draft, and then I'll, as I'm revising it, I read it out loud and make corrections. That's how I make corrections. That, that's kind of interesting what you're saying because um, whether it could be my poem, but in this workshop I teach, sometimes the person, when they read their poem out loud, they stumble where the problem is. I mean, they're not deliberately or intentionally stumbling, but all of a sudden they fumble the phrase, and it'll be like a place I marked, you know? And uh, I mean, I could do it for me. I could read it out loud and see how it sounds. Um, I... I always liken the poem being finished, it's kind of like you're working on this jigsaw puzzle and you finally snap the last little piece into place. But I've been having this experience lately, and it's really bad, is that um, I feel like I've got the whole thing, I mean, not that there's that many poems, but I've got these poems where I have the whole thing except this one little piece. And... um, you know, I'm just waiting to put the piece in. And sometimes, I guess, it takes longer. I, there's a wonderful story that, of, about Elizabeth Bishop, and she had this poem she was working on, and she needed an adjective, and she kept it on, on you know, like at a, a bulletin board or something by her desk. Mm-hmm. And it was, what, there like 10 or 20 years yeah. before she found the right an adjective. So... I guess she had a piece of the puzzle that needed to be that she couldn't find for a while. Uh. Do you know what that 
I think. Do you know no. which one it was? I don't know. Lowell talks about it. I, and I've actually tried to find the drafts of it. He talks about having seen this. But I, and I've, I've gone through her papers up at Vassar, and I haven't seen what it is. But then you're not looking at the originals there. You're looking at photocopies. So you don't know if there's a pinhole. <laughs> there's a poem. Um, is it North Haven where she uses the phrase, is it mystic blue? Yeah. And I think she had some problems finding the word mystic. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's a good adjective for, you know, that phrase, mystic blue. Um, so, uh, but I really, really admire people who don't rush it, you know, who like if, who willing to, to, to just say it's not quite ready, you know, rather than just send it out premature, you know. That's actually a good segue into my question, uh, which was just, are there, I mean, I guess Elizabeth Bishop has to be an influence, but are there other poets you see your work as being, like, in conversation with? Um, the poet that maybe, I've been influenced by Elizabeth Bishop, and I absolutely love her work. The poet that I really had been in conversation with was a poet who was a Maryland poet, Josephine Jacobson, um, who, for a while... Um, before I knew her, was Poet Laureate of the United States. And I knew Josephine for the, um, maybe 15 years towards the end of her life and kind of slowly got to know her better. And I feel that, well, a couple of poems of mine are directly, uh, you know, they're, they're in conversation with Josephine. And... Um, I just feel blessed that she was in my life and an influence. Yeah. Um, yeah, Bishop. Um, I, I really remember the first time I read one of Bishop's poems being in class when I was a freshman and um, in the waiting room. And, you know, when you're in high school, you have those books and it's all Thanatopsis and Ozymandias. And I loved all of that, but I hadn't heard any poems in spoken American English. <laughs> and I was so excited when I'd heard that poem. And I feel like when you're at that age, when you're a college student, and those first poets you get introduced with, they really stay with you. And so along with Bishop, um, Philip Levine was teaching at my college at that time. And I was too shy. I was to sign up for a class with him, but I knew people who had. And I got all his books. And uh, that he was writing about you know, this world that my family had come from, which had never, I'd never seen in poetry uh, before. And so that was very appealing. And then this, out of that too, my teacher in college, a woman named Deborah Diggs, um, had a big influence um, on, you know, my just writing poetry at all. She just, it's amazing, I think, sometimes when people do things which to them, you know, with students, they, you know, it seems so small sometimes, I think, that gesture. And, but whatever it is, it can just have these ramifications that can just go out and out and out. Um, so Deborah, definitely, yeah. Well, um, I think, you know, I might get too, I think both of you as poets, um, you know, I would call, like, the poems that you're writing 
or seem like autobiography, and yet they're also full of ideas or um, images. And um, I wonder, it seems like in some of the, uh, a lot of poets are sometimes one or the other, um, either totally very detailed and autobiographical or more abstract or imagistic. And I wondered um, that must, if that reflects your preferences or if you have any thoughts about... Um, you know, maybe why that is for you or what interests you in that sort of borderline. I'm not, I don't, I guess I don't think about it that much, you know, um, so I I feel like the, I mean, the poems are autobiographical. I'm not, you know, um, I'm not real. I'm not kind of making stuff up that's in them, and this is something I think you know. Sometimes students will have this big debate about, like, <laughs> you know, in terms of you know making whatever changes, um, you know, in staying true to what happened or to what sounds good in the in the poem. And I've always tried to stay true to whatever happened um, in the poem, which sometimes then leaves a poem hanging around for a while. <laughs> Um, because things can be delicate to talk about uh, with family members in particular. Yeah. So. I, I write about what's in front of me. And I mean, life keeps changing, so the scenery is going to keep changing. Um, uh, but that doesn't mean that you always write about it so that it it's sounds autobiographical or it's factual. I mean, what's in front of you can be something that's happening internally, and you figure out some sort of device or vehicle to talk about it in a poem. Um, uh, yeah. I, I, could I read? There's a little poem of Josephine's. I have her chat book with me, and it's about you take the raw material and then you turn it into the poem. It's really short, and it, it's kind of apropos to your question. And you've got to imagine like a meat grinder or a cuisinart or something that's like, you know, a kind of, uh, uh, you're feeding all this stuff into it. it. And it's called a blessing. And Josephine Jacobson wrote this. I rejoice in the poems not written, the cruelly discarded, the crippled, the asthmatic, the anemic. The poem about a photograph, about what love is like, about how strangely I felt that day, about something about me noticed. Bless you, go on the ash heap, that fine compost from muscle, blood, bone, which fuels surely the green, slick stalk. I don't know if you kind of need to work with it on the page, but I just love the whole business of the raw material life is kind of like the, the compost, and then something comes out, sprouts out of the compost. I thought that, I thought, and I also just love the line, I rejoice in the poems not written, because everyone's always rejoicing in the poems written. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I think that, you know, the paraphrase would be, I, re- I rejoice in the poems uh, a person decided it wouldn't be wise to, to write. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Hi, I think I heard both of you mention Bach in your poems tonight, and I was wondering if you associate music with your poetry, or if you listen to music while you're writing your poetry, or if it affects how you write when you're listening to music, if you do. Um, yeah, I love music, and we listen to it a lot. And I think one thing, well, maybe this is kind of surprising, but when I was in, I, my parents had me play instruments, and um, when I was in fifth grade, I signed up for drums. <laughs> and I was actually in my high school drum line. And um, I just adored it. I just loved, um, I loved, I couldn't, like, I couldn't do, like, a drum set or anything like that. And eventually the music got too complicated for me. I couldn't even read it anymore. I just had to imitate what was going on. But it was, it was a blast learning all those drum cadences and just the whole atmosphere of, you know, like the snare drummers are always like the real big stoners at your school. Like they're just, <laughs> that's, that keeps them going. I mean, they just, you know, but it was so much fun to just be in this world. And when we lived in Louisiana, um, they had, I was in a, a youth orchestra there and LSU had a youth percussion ensemble. And there was this, in the, in a, it was a college music room. The room was maybe a little bigger than this, but it was full of drums of all kinds. And um, they taught us how to play them, and I just adored it. And, um, and so I always feel like a lot of the writing, it's, I really do, the rhythm is so important to me um, in writing. I, I can't listen to, well, I, I don't, I like silence, I guess I'll put it that way. My husband likes music, but he has earphones, so... Uh, and I find that it's, it's hard to concentrate. And although music inspires some people, um, music's distracting to me. You know, it's my, all of a sudden my attention's kind of split a little. It's not just in the background. So, and, and also, this isn't a very silent world. Um, I live in the north part of Baltimore. And, I mean, there seems to be like five leaf blowers for every person on the street or something, as well as lawnmowers and everything else. So I, I yeah, I'm, I'm into silence. Two things. I think I've always discovered that I am home when the leaf blowers come. Also, I played percussion in high school, so oh, you and I you? have. Anyhow, uh, this is a question for Beth. Um, I taught elementary, and marking compositions were, composition was my favorite thing to teach. And I knew how to grade a composition, but when we did poetry, I never graded it because I felt that it was enough coming from the child, you know, that yeah. you know, what the child thought was wonderful. Maybe I didn't. But would you have any suggestions with the idea with, with children that you're just kind of getting into the idea of writing poetry, whether you even try to grade something? Well, I don't put grades on... When I'm teaching Goucher students or anybody else, I don't put grades on the poems. Uh, they, I have to give a final grade unless uh, they take a pass-fail. And I actually think creative courses should probably be pass-fail. Uh, so at that point, other factors come in, like did they come to class and turn the poems in on time. But they do get a final grade, but uh, they don't get, like, there's never anything like an, this poem had an A, this is an A poem, this is a B poem. 
That's um, kind of comforting to hear that even yeah. at the college level, you're not trying to put sort of a grade on it. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I, I have the same feeling you do that that it just it would be wrong. <laughs> okay, um, I think we, maybe we could move on to some closing poems. Um, if you want to just read from the table. Thank you all for your questions. Those are great. Um, this is called To Andrew at Two. Professor of Blackberry Science, maestro of the sink, taste tester who holds the Blackberry to the light, you are the foreman of the Blackberry line, the trench coated inspector. You reach for another, and your mouth is a Blackberry, and your chin is a Blackberry, and it's then I know when you walk by the pond, you'll bestow your beneficence to the mice and the squirrels and proclaim the preeminence of Blackberries to the birds. You eat another, and your two wet eyes and your belly is a Blackberry, and when you go to sleep, you will sleep the sleep of Blackberries, of black stars and black moons, of paths so brambly that one day, when you enter the parlors of heaven, you will find them, as Whitman says, adorned with the running Blackberry. That's really great. Okay. Um. I've been, um, i got to explain a little bit about this poem. I've been using this book in my, one of my workshops called The Zen of Creativity, and it's by a, a Zen, well, he's, he's uh, died, but a Zen priest and poet named John Dato Lori. And uh, it's not like one of those kind of really bad self-help books on, like, you too can be creative. This is a really profound book, and every time I read it, I feel very excited and refreshed. And he makes this statement in the book, and I'll quote, it's, I've got a quote here. One of the beautiful aspects of Asian poetry is the vagueness of its languages. And uh, that really interested me because poets rightfully so, are always trying to kind of nail it down. You know, and, and, and you have this conversation in class if you're teaching about don't be general, be specific. And I thought, hey, this goes against everything that I, you, know, you normally think and that you normally tell them. So this poem kind of came um, out of, partly out of that thought how vagueness can be beautiful. Um, and then I found a quote that kind of supported it by Walt Whitman. And he said, you must not know too much or be too precise or scientific about birds and trees and flowers. A certain free margin or even vagueness, perhaps ignorance, credulity, helps your enjoyment of these things. So um, this poem is called A Memory of the Future, and somebody older is reading it, is saying it. A Memory of the Future. I will say tree, not pine tree. I will say flower, not forsythia. I will see birds, many birds, flying in four directions. Then rock and cloud will be lost 
spring will be lost, and most terribly, your name will be lost. I will revel in a world no longer particular, a world made vague as if by fog, but not fog. Vaguely aware, I will wander at will. I will wade deeper into wide water. You'll see me there, out by the horizon, an old gray thing who finally knows gray is the most beautiful color.